Hi, we're Shannon and Jerry Arner. And our dog, Betty White. Your hosts of the Arner Adventures podcast. Could we have named it something more creative? Probably. But it's the name of our blog. It's our last name. We're on an adventure. Yada, yada, yada. After running our own business, working 24-7. And don't forget a mental breakdown in between. We made a lifestyle change and decided to make the most out of life. We sold our house, most of our belongings, downsized, and moved to the coast. We live life minimally, but fully. We live each day as an adventure. This show will help you learn how to live life more fully, with more intention, by experiencing more, and with less stuff. We'll talk about our own experiences, interview others who have much to share by creating a spark in our lives. Some days we'll share real life ongoings of what we're going through and others will talk about our favorite flavor of waffle. Come join our adventure. It's It's the the Arner Arner Adventures Adventures Podcast. Hello everybody, I'm Shannon. And I'm Jerry. And we are back for a lucky episode 13 of the Arner Adventures Podcast. Betty White, our sweet little white furry bundle of senior lovable joy is with us, and we are so excited for this episode. Today's episode is another Spark in Our Lives guest episode where we interview someone who is a spark in our lives. Before we get to our guest, let's get to the review of the week. This week's review, you guys, it's from Peppermint Charlotte. Peppermint Charlotte is amazing. Okay. Let's just go ahead and get to her review. Do you want to read it? I do. Peppermint Charlotte said, one of my new favorite podcasts, this couple and her dog are consistent with positivity and nuggets of inspiration, not only from their own lives, but those that they bring on as guests. I have been able to gain a better sense of not sweating the small stuff by learning more about what truly matters in life. Hearing them each week and now following their social media and blog has been a positive addition to 2022, and I'm here for it. Keep doing what you're doing, Arners, because it's working. Peppermint Charlotte, I don't know who you are, <laughs> but I want you more in our life because I I just feel like we need to take Peppermint Charlotte out for Peppermint Schnapps, a peppermint tea. And you can invite your sister, Patty. <laughs> I think it would <laughs> I think it would be a good time had for all. That is the nicest thing I've ever read about us in my life. You know, on a blah day, that really can be that really can be uplifting. That yeah, is so uplifting. That's, I, um, yeah. That's really nice. That is so nice. And and really, again, you put this content out and you read something like that. Boy, oh boy, does that keep you keep going. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on, Arners, because it's working. And that that makes us keep on. It sure does. Yeah. Thanks again, Peppermint Charlotte. Well, Charlotte, that was great. Peppermint Charlotte and anybody else. Well, you know, Peppermint Charlotte, we, we got to get in touch with her. I, I've had a hard time getting in touch with you, Peppermint Charlotte. So DM us or message us. If you would like to be our review of the week and get a chance to receive a gift from Sugar Wish, please take a moment and give us a five-star review or rating. We have an easy link for you all to follow. It's down in the show notes, but it's lovethepodcast.com slash Adventures. It helps us so much to support us in that way. And as you can see, like Peppermint Charlotte has inspired us, it inspires us. Wowzers. Well, let's go ahead and get to our guest today, Kurt DeBerg. I had the pleasure of meeting Kurt in Key West last 
summer during the Hemingway days in July. A lot of you already know, but those of you who don't, my dad is in the Hemingway Lookalike Society. Yes, there is such a thing. And my dad, I guess a few years ago, um, this is a, a kind of a fun story for those of you who don't know it. We were on a vacation with my dad and you know, he started growing a beard, getting, you know, aging a little bit. And we were just kind of making the comment that, hey, dad, you know, you're, you're starting to look a little bit like Ernest Hemingway. And then we started kind of saying, oh, you know, down in Key West, which he had never been at that time, they do this Ernest Hemingway, the Hemingway days in July, and you should go and enter the Ernest Hemingway contest. Totally joking. Well, he, he took it very seriously. And so the next year, no, I think when we got home, he actually entered the contest, <laughs> maybe <laughs> filled out the entry form. And so he entered the contest and we have been going to Key West in July ever since. And he is now a member of the Hemingway Lookalike Society. And it's amazing. Well, we had no idea how much Ernest Hemingway was going to be involved in our lives. And so it's kind of a really nice thing because we now know so much about Ernest Hemingway. I think we all, most of us, you know, read Ernest Hemingway stories in high school, right? Did you? I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you read about Ernest Hemingway and read his, his books and his stories and knew a little bit, you know, skimming off the top information about him. But we've had the pleasure of, of course, getting to meet members of his family and going to Key West and, and getting to know other members of the society. And it's just this really great group of people. And so it's just been a really great experience through the years. And it's, it's also difficult to talk about Hemingway without mentioning his mental illness and the subject matter in this podcast, conversation regarding his mental illness can be triggering to some. We highly recommend that if you have thoughts of harming yourself, that you call National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255, or you can visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. We take the topic of mental health seriously, as many of you know. Please reach out for help if you feel that you're having your own mental health issues or questions at all. We will have resources available in the show notes as well. This episode is really interesting. Whether you're a Hemingway fan or not, what DeBerg has done following in the footsteps of Hemingway is truly an adventure, traveling all over the world, going to places, uncovering so many stories and interesting facts. Kurt took on a huge endeavor for sure. And the book is just beautiful and very well written. So we can go ahead with the episode. Yeah. Our guest today is Kurt DeBerg. Kurt is a true adventurer, which is why we wanted to have him on the podcast. He spent the past few years traveling the world in the footsteps of Ernest Hemingway, which if you know us, you know is near and dear to our hearts. Kurt has meticulously documented his journey along the way, not only documented, but literally stayed in the places where Hemingway stayed, lived, spent time, and you can see and read about his experiences in the beautiful coffee table-sized book, Traveling the World with Hemingway. It incorporates new and historical photos, as well as narrative and 240 full-color pages. We met Kurt in Key West last summer during the annual Hemingway Days and are honored to have him join us on the show today. Thank you so much for being here, Kurt. Thank you for having me, Shannon. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, you spend so much time traveling. Where are you Where are you currently right now? Are you even in the U.S.? 
Yes, I'm in Miami, Florida. And, oh. Uh, I'll be uh, here for another week, and then I'm going back to France, where my home base is Paris. But after I recover from jet lag, I'll take the speed train down to one of Hemingway's favorite vacation spots during the late 20s and early 30s. It's a little port town called Andai in the heart of the Basque country. Okay. Gosh, that's that's exciting. We're not jealous at all, first of all, about any of that. <laughs> well, you know, um, I took a sabbatical two years ago and then COVID hit and my sabbatical was in Paris. And this almost sounds like a fairy tale, but I met a very lovely French woman who owns and operates some chocolate tea and coffee stores. So we live above one of the coffee stores in Paris and we're actually opening a new coffee store in Andai and that'll be open at the end of April. What a romantic story. That you is know, so I, nice. I'm a lucky man. And uh, of course I'm settling <laughs> in a couple cities that were near and dear to Hemingway's heart. You're a retired accounting professor from California yes. State University. And yeah. this all started, you went on a trip to the Keys to visit a cousin. Yeah. And yeah. then you visited the Hemingway house and you were inspired yeah. and intrigued by Ernest Hemingway. But, you know, a lot of people go visit the Keys and a lot of people go visit the Hemingway house and they don't then go travel in Hemingway's footsteps. So. I'm just curious how an accounting professor then sort of was so inspired, which look, I, I love Hemingway too, obviously, but I, I mean, what, what do you think that pull was for you and what made you decide, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical and then I'm going to go and travel in his footsteps and take on this huge endeavor? You know, the two things, there are two key things that inspired me to write a book and travel the world. Uh, the first thing was, when I was in high school, I wanted to major in English. And my favorite author back then was John Steinbeck. Mm. And we read Shakespeare and, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, um, we read Greek tragedies and I loved American literature. And of course, the only book we read in high school, I think about, or by Hemingway was The Old Man and the Sea, which right. I liked it. Um, I thought it was a wonderful little novella. And of course it helped him win the Pulitzer Prize in 1953. Um, but my high school English teacher and my math teacher said, Kurt, if you want to become a teacher and you want to major in English, we'd ask that you consider majoring in something else that will pay better. Because if you want to travel the world, you're not going to be able to do it on a high school English teacher salary. So right. I went to university. I majored in business, specifically accounting. Uh, I worked in public accounting for a couple of years and then uh, I said, look, I really want to be a teacher. And so my mentor at the university suggested I go back and get a PhD in business administration, specifically in accounting, because I liked it. It was easy to keep score. You know, measuring cash flow is fun, uh, but I'm not the most analytical person in the world. I was really more, uh, I think I was more of a liberal arts guy. And then back in 2016, I was taking a summer vacation to Europe. And I went to visit my college roommate in Sweden, and then I went to see some friends in Germany. Uh, but then my last real stop was in Poland, where I went to visit two friends who lived in a city called Poznan. Mm -hmm. The father of one of these two women asked if I wanted to go flying with him before dinner, the last night before I left Poland. I said, sure. But unbeknownst to me, he was inebriated, and he misjudged the landing upon our return. And uh, we veered sharply to the right, we took flight again, at which point we clipped the top of a tree branch 
and we crashed. And I broke my leg in several places. I broke my left pelvis. I broke my wrist in two places. I had a bruised lung. And I remember, though I never lost consciousness, I remember thinking Hemingway survived two plane crashes. Two. Right. And now, uh, since I had been reading all about him at that point, I said, look, one thing I want to do in this world before I, uh, if I survive this, is to travel the world. So that was my epiphany. I survived a plane crash, and I had then grown to love Hemingway's literature, and I, I really fell in love with his life story. And so oh my I wanted God. to be an English teacher, and uh, I had an accident that caused me to want to do something uh, that was allowing me to follow my passion, which was English literature and American mm -hmm. literature, specifically Hemingway. Do you feel this uh, sort of kindred spirit with Hemingway because of it? I mean, I, I'm not trying to get too woo-woo. I mean, I mean, I really do mean it. I mean, do you feel uh, you that? Know, I'm so immersed in the Hemingway story after three years of traveling about him and writing about him and uh, coming out with one book about him and hopefully a second one this year. Um, mm -hmm. um, I feel like we're kindred in that we both love to travel. Um, mm -hmm. We both love red wine. Um, mm -hmm. While he loved many women, that's one place where he and I differ. I've only <laughs> been married once and never cheated. Um, now I'm very happy with my uh, girlfriend in France. We call a girlfriend a copine. So uh -huh. ma copine habite en français. My girlfriend lives in France. And the reason I'm in Miami right now is to establish a base of residence so that I can uh, maintain my U.S. citizenship and live in uh, para or live in Miami when I come back to the U.S. And uh, and also, you know, I love America. I'll never give up my American citizenship, but I do plan on spending a good part of the year both in France and then in Spain. I lived a 10-minute boat taxi ride across from Andai. I am 10 minutes can be in a little town that Hemingway loved called Onda Ribia, Spain. And wow. you can eat as many uh you know tapas and you can drink rioja wine and you are only yep. one hour from pamplona you're a yep. half hour from san sebastian spain so i'm i'm gonna live the rest of my life i hope uh in andai and and in paris when i want to get away from the country i can go to the city <laughs> your book um you know traveling the world with hemingway when we were in Key West last July, and a lot of our, our listeners know, but for those who don't, my dad is in the Hemingway Lookalike Society. And of course, we had met you and uh, knew you had the book. You had the book. I hadn't seen it at the time, but we got home and I ordered the book and I had no idea what to expect. I just knew that, yeah, I had met this guy, Kurt, and yes, he traveled in the in the footsteps of Hemingway. And wow, that's really cool. And he's this adventurous guy. And that is really cool. And then this book comes and I wish that I have it here, but I wish I could sh show everyone, which I will. I'll have it on the blog and the show notes, a link to it. But if you don't have it, we it's completely transformative and it's, it's more than, a, I don't even want to call it a coffee table book because it's more than that. I have a coffee table, I have plenty of coffee table books and it's not like that. It, it really is beautifully artistic and it's a coffee table type book and that it's big and it's beautiful, but I will literally find myself opening it sometimes to look at it. And then I'll find myself 30 minutes later standing, yeah. still reading these stories. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like this, the romanticism of 
of the stories and the places and like what you're just telling me, like right across. And then there's this town he spent all this time in. And, but I guess my point here is you have these nuggets of information that I'm, I'm guessing number one, I don't even understand how you did it. I guess it's just the research of a writer, but do you have, do you find that you were able to find nuggets of information that that even his family didn't know about? Like, are you able to find stories that even they didn't know about? The answer to that is yes, and a resounding yes. And uh, the thing that I found most interesting about Hemingway that that I didn't know was almost happenstance. Uh, My photographer and I were taking the train from Vienna because after we had traveled to Schroon's, Austria, we took the train to Vienna and spent a few days. And then we took an overnight train to Venice because we, I wanted to get pictures of Pasalta and where he was wounded in World War I. Mm-hmm. And my photographer is a young lady in her mid-20s who graduated from California State University, Chico. And she's an outstanding photographer. So I had her accompany me, but she spent the night in the overnight berth with two other gir- college-age girls and a father. And the father asked her what she was doing. And she explained that she was taking photos on my behalf for this book. And he said, well, if you're going to Pasalta, you really ought to go to the little city near Pasalta where Lieutenant Edward M. McKee is buried. And I go, I remember McKee was an ambulance driver, uh, then later a canteen worker in the American Red Cross in 1918. And uh, she said, well, why should we want to know about that? And uh, he said, there's a lot more to the World One story than uh, what you would read about in Hemingway's books. And if you follow the Edward M. McKee story to the end, you might discover something new. And that intrigued me when Daisy told me about this. And Edward M. McKee had died almost three weeks before Hemingway was killed near the, the little town of Pasalta, uh, which is about 40 miles north and a bit west of Venice. And the Piave River separated uh, on the... Uh, on the east, you had the Austrian enemy, and on the west, you had the Italians fighting valiantly uh, near the end of World War I. The Americans hadn't entered the fight until near the end of the war, but the ambulance drivers, the American Red Cross, was asked to replicate what they had done in France in 1917 to help rescue uh, Italian soldiers in the trenches. And uh, I found it fascinating that McKee was the only other ambulance driver during uh, Hemingway's period there to die. And McKee won the Silver Medal of Valor. Well, Hemingway was stationed less than two hours away in a little city called Schio, Italy. And when he was asked by his superior if he wanted to volunteer to go down to Pasalta and enter and become nearer the fighting, well, Hemingway and three others volunteered because the young 18-year-old Hemingway wanted to see action. He was merely a volunteer who was he was precluded from going to the front line while there was any real action happening. And so Hemingway, you know, in my forthcoming book, I described four scenarios. One is the simple Red Cross story. One is the fantastic story that grew more and more fantastic with every Hemingway telling. The other story was in a farewell to arms where Frederick Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Frederick Henry was injured in a mortar blast similar to Hemingway. And Hemingway said that account of the war that happened to Henry was the most likely account of what happened to him. And Hemingway was a bit ambiguous. 
And then I talk about the end, the most plausible story. And you can weigh all the evidence, but the most plausible story is Hemingway volunteered because he wanted to get closer to danger. He volunteered for an area near where Edward M. McKee had died. But it was past midnight, and when Hemingway was delivering chocolate and cigarettes, of course these soldiers in the front line congregated around the young, affable soldier, causing a commotion. And there was only Uh 60 yards separating him from the enemy, and the enemy had to hear what was going on. There were no searchlights happening that night, but the enemy trained their mortar uh, shelling equipment, and they dropped the mortar close to where Hemingway was. Now, Hemingway was injured with more than 200 piercings. The Red Cross said he suffered 10 fairly serious wounds. They weren't serious. They were not serious. They were fairly serious, two of which were both one behind the knee and one behind the big toe on his right leg. And of course, Hemingway parlayed that into machine gun bullets, not mortar blasts. And of course, he said nothing about being uh, having a concussion. He said in the early accounts, a wound on the head that needed to have stitches. Um, but of course, later on, the stories as they grew, here's the kicker, was not a hero in World War I. He may have been the cause of the death of the man who came between he and the mortar shell. Whoa. And the death of that man, his name, that man has a name now because thanks to the research by Jamie McGrath Morris, and Marino Parasinotto, the identity of the soldier that died that night was Federale Temperini, or Fidele Temperini, excuse me. You know, take a deep breath here. Yes, Hemingway got the Silver Medal of Valor because he was wounded. Any young American Red Cross person who got wounded automatically got the Silver Medal because they had gotten wounded and the Italians wanted more Red Cross support and they wanted more support from the American army, right? The Americans brought in a, 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 a troops near the end, but they didn't see any action. Uh, the only people seeing action were the American Red Cross volunteers. Hemingway put himself in danger. He was disobeying orders in all likelihood by going into the front line trench. There was no forward listening post. There was a front line trench and a behind the bank trench right? Hemingway entered the front line trench and was injured. Yes. Was he injured because he saved somebody or hoisted someone over his back, ran a hundred yards with a bullet riddled? No, no. The most likely story is the kid caused uh, the commotion and somebody did die. It wasn't three people who died. Only one person died. Wow. Now, that's not a flattering account, but I'm amazed that an 18-year-old would have done this. Um, Most of the kids in the Ambulance Red Cross were Ivy League kids who used the six-month or three-month stay or six-month stay uh, with the Red Cross as kind of a summer abroad program. He arrived, I think, on June 6th or July. He arrived in Italy on June 6th, and he was called away on about June 20th or so. Uh, so he was only at the front lines for uh, a week or two, right? And he didn't really see any real action until July 8th, the night he was wounded. So he was just like, I've got to see some action. 
again, sort of going into, I had read Hemingway's books, but never, never knew anything really about him except for what everybody sort of hears. Oh, he was adventurous. He had this lust for life. And, and so as my dad gets involved in this, I learned more about Hemingway, the man, the more I've learned along the way and the, you know, his lust for life. And of course, excitement, storytelling, this, this is me personally, the more sad I become about him and the more things I start questioning. And so my question for you is may have answered it is that, did you think that this lust for life adventure at outlook was real, but it sounds like it is real because, or, or at least was well, because he, he had went a hypomanic personality and that means he had extreme it wasn't nearly as much as a manic person, but it's a, a hypomania is a slighter form of, uh, you know, bipolar disorder. Yeah. And when yeah. he was euphoric, he he demanded attention. He needed to be seated at the front of the table. And yeah. uh, when he was despondent, he usually took it out on one of his wives, right? He, yeah. Th there's no evidence of that he physically abused Hadley or Pauline, but there is yeah. evidence that he did hit Martha at least once. And there's mm -hmm. evidence in letters by Mary, his fourth wife, to his publisher, that he slapped Mary around once in a while. Look, I will raise a toast to Hemingway's stories. His literature has changed yeah. American literature. It changed world literature. I will raise a toast to his life. He lived yeah. a bigger than life. I also say that the man was human and he was tortured at the end. He was tortured by his alcoholism. Yeah. He had at least four or five major concussions during his life. He was always sick or being injured. He literally shot himself in the leg once on board the Pilar in 1935. Yeah. He badly injured his right arm in a, uh, in a uh, car accident uh, near Bozeman, Montana and at the end of 1930. Um, he hit his head and had severe head trauma during his second plane crash in 1954, in January of 1954. And the only way to escape the burning plane was to use his head as a battering ram to open up the door, Mary and the other people had escaped via the smaller a window uh, in the front of the plane, but Hemingway was too big. So the only way out of this plane was to, you know, give himself a, a, a head fracture. Um, so, and he was always sick. For a big man, uh, uh, um, John Dos Passos said he never knew a man so big and so zestful for life to be injured and sick so often and confined to his Royale, Royale Lee or Lee Royale, which is French for royal bed. You asked you earlier about, you know, Hemingway and why I was inspired. Well, Hemingway, of course, you know, he had a lust for the drink. He drank a lot. I like red wine, but I'm no longer an alcoholic. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I still drink red wine. But after my plane crash, I went through a couple of years of despondency because I couldn't find the right pain medication for me to look at each day positively. It just hurts too damn much. And, right. and I'll take a drug called Lyrica, which is uh, yeah. for neuropathy. And that's just enough for me to face the day and go, yeah, I can enjoy the day. And at four o'clock, I'm going to have my glass of Rioja wine. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so thoughts yeah. of suicide. Hemingway always had thoughts of suicide. And in the end, he was a tortured man. He couldn't write anymore. Um, he had electroconvulsive shock treatments. He had 25 of them in two yeah. two-month stays at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester at yeah. the end of 1960 and the beginning of 1962, or 61 rather.
I read, um, and I can't remember when now, I know it was in your book about the FBI, the FBI, and he was hearing the voices and they thought the FBI was after him. And then I read a few years ago when they, after, you know, a certain amount of years, they actually opened the, the files, um, the FBI files, and it was proven that the FBI had been investigating him. So yeah. that was so sad to me because well, I thought not only was, I mean, he did suffer mental illness, but then you have someone who did, um, suffer a lot of paranoia but then the fbi was investigating him then you go well where was that was he hearing voices that were true on the phone or 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 was that voices what is your perception of that um there is no doubt that the fbi had a file on him they had a file on him since the spanish civil war when he was on the republican side right he was on the side that the communists were fighting for right the communists were fighting against Hitler and Mussolini, who were the fascists, right? Right. So Hemingway sided with the uh, with that part of the government, uh, uh, the leftist Republican part of the government, which was supported by uh, by um, Stalin, right? And so right. his support of the Republican government, which ultimately fell in 1939, um, led. Uh, Hoover to open a file. Now, mind you, Hoover opened a file on everyone that had any remote connection to the communists, right? And ultimately, several people, especially in Hollywood, had files on them just because yeah. they weren't necessarily communist sympathizers, but th they sided with the poor and the disenfranchised. Mental wellness is something we talk a lot about here on Warner Ventures, which is great. It should be part of the daily conversation. Mental wellness is important. We wanted to share a resource that we love, have used, and refer to others. It is a game changer in helping you find a therapist to match your specific needs. Full transparency. I remember being at one of my lowest points a few years ago, desperate for help needing a therapist who had a specific skill set. I'd been calling around, Googling, trying to make a connection with someone who could help me. No one understood the level of grief I was experiencing. And when I finally called my local crisis and assessment center, thinking they could help me, I couldn't get help there either. Here's the thing. Finding a therapist should not be this difficult. We have found a wonderful resource that takes all of the difficulty away from matching you with a therapist to fit your specific needs and preferences. It's Mental Health Match. Mental Health Match literally takes the stress out of finding a therapist by answering just a few questions. It's free to use, takes minutes, and is the easiest way to find a therapist. You can choose therapy approaches, topics to tackle, skills you want to learn, and if there are traits about a therapist that are important to you, you can choose those too. If price is a concern, you can choose insurance, no insurance. You can search that route as well. You can also find therapy options for in-person or virtual. Once you have your therapist matches, you can choose whether or not you want to share your information or contact them on your own. Like I said, I've used this. We've shared this with friends and family who have used this option. It's such an easy process. We encourage you to give it a try. Finding someone to talk to is so important in maintaining mental wellness. Visit mentalhealthmatch.com to find a therapist that is the best match for you. It's the easiest way to find a therapist. Right. right. And uh, so Hemingway then, uh, most people think Hemingway was apolitical, but he was quite political. Um, you know, he, he did not 
agree with his uh, in-laws in Piggott, Arkansas, who were devout Catholic. And the devout Catholics were fighting on the side of the uh, of um, Franco and the uh, and the fascist side, right? And so, you know, Americans today don't even really know much about the Spanish Civil War, about the leftists and the Republicans fighting against the fascists and uh, the, the nationalists, right? And so, yes. J. Edgar Hoover had a file on Hemingway, and Hemingway in 1946 uh, did contribute to uh, a fund that was trying to overthrow Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. And uh, in order to escape the wrath of the uh, existing government in Cuba, Hemingway left the Finca Vigia and went back to Idaho for a month or two until things cooled off, because it was true, Hemingway was supporting the cause to overthrow the Trujillo government, which was... Uh, um, you know, which was siding again with the uh, with the side on which Hemingway didn't want to be, right? Because Trujillo right. was entrenched and was part of, as I understand, it was part of the uh, uh, American-led uh, group at that time, and uh, Hemingway sided with the anti-Hoover group, and ultimately right. Hemingway sided with the communist government, which was uh, Castro's government, you know. Hemingway ultimately put out a, a directive when Castro overthrew uh, Batista, and he, the, the journalist asked him uh, whose side was he on, and Hemingway said, man, I'm so happy to see change. I think, I think Castro is going to do a better job than Batista, and of course yeah. that got blown up as oh, sure. he was supporting Castro, but he was not supporting Castro. In fact, he only met Castro once in 1960 at a fishing tournament where Hemingway gave away the trophy for the uh, Hemingway sponsored fishing tournament, right? So was there a file on uh, Hemingway? Yes. Was it active? Absolutely not. Was Hemingway oh. paranoid and suffering delusions? Yes. But was okay, he delusional so that, about his personal finances? Yes. Was okay, he repeating so it was, self It was paranoia and delusion. So that was it. Yeah. Okay. I know you said you'd raise a toast to him, but if he were, you know, alive and well today, do you... Do you find him likable? Do you think you'd be friends with him? When the mood was right, you'd be happy to have a drink with him. Yeah. You might not get a word in edgewise. Yeah. He was a major, you know, bullshit artist. He could tell tall tales with the best of them. And uh, he was fun. He was fun to be around. But when he was nasty, you know, yeah. you know, you know, he ultimately dumped on most of his literary friends. Right. Yeah. You could go through a long list and he's starting with Gertrude Stein and Sherwood Anderson. And mm -hmm. he ultimately alienated himself from John Dos Passos. And of course, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, I know. Uh, some literary friends with his very first book, uh, the gentleman named Harold Loeb, uh, was the bad guy in uh, The Sun Also Rises. And he was really quite a nice guy. And he was Jewish. And Hemingway was somewhat anti-Semitic, and we can say, well, that was a product of the time, but yeah, uh, he, uh, he was anti-Semitic. But Not I mean, there's plenty of stories about how uh, he, you know, hated women, and I mean, there's so many people write, you know, theses on, on that all the time about how he was a woman hater, and, you know, there's all these different things about about that, but yeah. I, I, there's you know, so much was he an environmentalist at times? Was he, yeah. did he waste animals? Uh, gratuitously at times. Yes mm -hmm. and yes. Did he love women and did he respect them at times? And did he oftentimes denigrate them? Yes. You know, yeah. uh, did he make sure that he became legendary? Yes. Um, uh, Martha Gellhorn called him an apocryphier 
which was a, a term that she coined that said an apocryphire is someone still alive who knows that the truth has been bent, but could set the record straight. But ultimately, everyone dies, including the source of the story, right? And so the ah. legend begins. So yeah. an apocryphire lets the story grow bigger and bigger without the person benefiting from the story, setting the record straight. There's this quote of someone in, in Cuba after his death who was someone asked him about Hemingway and he was talking about his generosity to them, the people of Cuba. But but he said it might have been a journalist. I can't remember. But he said, yes, he was very generous to us. However, his ego was as big as the, the numerous cars he had here. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> One of his finest qualities was his generosity. Of course, his ego was big. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for crying out loud. Right. Know? He was very kind to the people that lived near him in San Francisco de Paula. He would oftentimes help out struggling writers. But the thing that I was most amazed at is when his mother died, with whom for whom he had a great distaste for, and during his adult life, he would often refer to her as the bitch of a woman. He, he would often around his friends would say, my mother was a bitch. Nonetheless, when the father died in 1928, at the end of 1928, he made it a point to set up a trust fund that would throw off at that time at least $100 a month to keep her living comfortably. So he did oh. the duty as the oldest of six children to be the provider. And even though he had a huge distaste for his mother, he never saw her um, for the last 13 years of his life, by most accounts, I can't find any account where he saw her after her last visit to Key West. I think it was in 1939, 1938 or 39, when he and Pauline were definitely on their way out. And and Pauline was desperately trying to save the marriage. But yeah. he never saw her after that. Uh, and the mother died in 1951. I think it was 13 years later that he never saw her. He would rarely reply to letters at the end of her life. And the, the sister, Sonny, uh, would beg Ernest to write her a letter or call her and just forgive her for any transgressions that she may have caused. But there's no account of writing or any phone calls where he would absolve his mother of any guilt of henpecking the father or um, being overbearing. Yeah. Um, the one thing he did do is he, uh, the day of her funeral, he asked the priest at the nearby uh, Catholic church near San Francisco de Paula to ring the bells in her, on her behalf. So wow. um, it's kind of a telling thing that he asked the bells to be rung in his mother's honor. Right. And, you know, I asked for whom does the bell toll then? And he did, uh, wow. at least by one biographer's account, that he asked that the priest ring the bells that he could hear them from, from the Finca. And I like right. to think that that was his way of forgiving his mother any transgressions, but it would have been nice to hear it from him. You're on your travels and you go to these various places. Do you ever get any pushback from anyone? I mean, does, does anyone, is anyone ever, uh, are p most people pretty respectful when you say that you are, you know, you're walking in the footsteps of Hemingway. Are they pretty interested in your story or are they just like, no, we don't want you here. Do you ever get any of that? The, the people, the people that know much about Hemingway, love anything that is being done by Hemingway. But I will tell you right now, uh, there are two people with the last name Hemingway, 
Uh, one is very supportive of me, and I got his blessing uh, to carry forward with the book because he said any any honest and true reporting of my great-grandfather's uh, life is appreciated, even though we may not agree with it. Uh, um, but if it's well-justified and it's rational and it's supported, we would support it. Um, mm -hmm. But there's another member of the Hemingway family that's very... Uh, very protective of the Hemingway name and is not happy that I've come out with these stories about his World War I heroism and quotes. And instead of being a hero, he may have been a goat. And I don't mean greatest of all time as a writer. Mm -hmm. I mean a goat who may have been somewhat culpable in the death of an Italian soldier. Uh, so Hemingway's family is, of course, very involved in Hemingway days. Uh, we talked, of course, um, about, you know, Patrick Hemingway is down there. And then uh, Kristen Hemingway Janes has has been very involved. And uh, you said that you have found nuggets of information that they don't they don't really know about either. Do you find that the general consensus of the Hemingway estate, Hemingway family, when you do go on adventures and are you able to connect with, with like them specifically? My closest connection to the Hemingway uh, um, uh, lineage is uh, Patrick Hemingway, who was Hemingway's second son. Uh, his grandson is Patrick A uh, Hemingway Adams, who lives in Bozeman, Montana. And mm -hmm. I met him in Key West last summer at the Hemingway days. And then I told him I would be making my way through Montana and through Idaho and also uh, on my way to uh, Wyoming. And he said, well, hey, if you're going to be in uh, uh, Montana and you're going to be in Bozeman, look me up. And so I did. And we had a lovely lunch or dinner together. And he, he, he asked me about the theme of my next book. And he said, Kurt, you know, you're telling me some things I wasn't that aware of. And he said, it, it sounds like you've done your homework on this. Um, especially having met uh, the Italian researcher who's an expert on World War I. And he said, if, you're, if your book is an honest and uh, academic portrayal of my grandfather's life and your opinions are clearly stated as your opinion and not as fact when you don't know them to be fact, then mm -hmm. uh, he said, I would personally look forward to reading this book. And in that way, I know I had the Hemingway family uh, stamp of approval through right. him, because right. he's going to be in charge of Patrick's uh, uh, Hemingway legacy. And then uh, uh, Bumby Hemingway, John Hemingway's uh, second wife, Carol, is in charge of the estate and the Hemingway name through John slash Jack slash Bumby. And mm -hmm. then uh, the person in charge of um, Gregory Hemingway's uh, dealings are Sean Hemingway, who is the son of Gregory Hemingway. And... Um, Hemingway's assistant the last couple of years of his life, the Italian young lady. Uh, and of course, right now I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she was a very close friend of the Hemingway's and she helped Mary or organize all of Hemingway's uh, papers at the Finca Vigia. And uh, she was the Irish lady that helped Ernest. And she now uh, had a son named Sean. So Sean and Patrick and Carol are kind of in charge of the Hemingway family dealings. And they have the rum distillery in Key West. They yeah. have a license. Uh, they've given licensure to a winery in uh, Paso Robles, Cal uh, California. 
through Patrick, I've kind of been given the go-ahead on my next book. The book tentatively titled is entitled Hemingway, New Perspectives, New Inspiration. New Perspective is, hey, Hemingway is a 21st century man, and you know all these people go to Key West each year, but how many of these Papa lookalikes have read about him? My biography is going to be an easy biography to read, but it, his biography is only part of the story because I've intertwined Hemingway's life and I've talked about his four major demons, his parents, primarily mom, his wives, who of course are uh, Hadley, Pauline, uh, Martha, and Mary. The next are his, uh, his injuries and illnesses. He had so many injuries and he was sick so often, you know, I can't even go through a long, long list of injuries and illnesses without writing a book about it. Well, it's in my book. And mm -hmm. the last are his, you know, his constant mental problems. You know, his mental problems stem from alcoholism to begin with. He drank so much that his son Bumby said he drank a quart of whiskey every day of his life, the last 20 years of his life, oh. in addition to wine and beer, right? Um, um, and of course... He has head injuries along with his alcoholism, along with his mental decline, which he started suffering from bipolar disorder uh, that started with his hypomanic personality, right? His hypomania drove him to be a great writer as much as any World War I experience. Um, and then uh, his constantly talking about suicide. That last paragraph of your book when you, uh, oh, I mean, I could get, I could, I could tear up right now. And I don't know why the way you wrote it, of course, I know the story. Of course, I know what happened. And the way, I, I don't even know, because you're just saying what happened. And, and, no. but it's just the way that you wrote it. When you say um, for, um, he had tried many times, but this time he did not fail. Yeah. And I just, ah, oh, I just tear up every time. And I don't know why, because of course I know what happened, but there's something about the way that you wrote those words out that, um, you know, you know I don't have my book impactful. in front of me, but I remember writing it into that book and I'm going, what is the fitting ending? I mean, the end of every Hemingway book ends in Ketchum. To kind of bring it on a higher note about the afterward, my dad last year, Kristen Hemingway Janes had a, it was like a, a way of, um, it wasn't a writing course. It was a way of, um, us all sort of some people getting together for a, like a reviewing each other's writing course. And my dad gifted it for me for uh, Christmas or my birthday or something. And one of the things that I took away from, it was like a zoom course. And one of the things that um, we did was read a bunch of Hemingway's short stories, which I had never yeah. read. I'd never read his short stories in your afterward. You say um, in regards to Hemingway relating it to Cezanne, uh, often yeah, he lent readers yeah. their own brushes so that they might fill in some of the gaps consistent with his iceberg theory of writing. And the Hemingway short story I thought about uh, was Indian Camp. I don't know if you've ever oh, read yeah. it. Yeah. So we all read that story. It was one of the first short stories that we read. We came back the next week and we all had, there was probably uh, 10 of us in the class and we all had different theories of, of uh, especially like what happened to Uncle George. And, uh, you know, everyone had their own takeaway. And Kristen 
had that was the first time I also knew that Kristen had said to us, you know, Hemingway wants everyone to have their own takeaway. Like he, of course, wants he's going to write the story and he probably had his takeaway, but he writes it so that you can take your own lesson or whatever. But uh, there, you know, someone said, and I don't, I almost don't want to give it away because I almost want everyone to go read it, but because it was just so mind blowing of a short story. But when people were talking about, well, you know, this is what happened and this is what happened. And we all were going, what, what? So when you, when I read that of what you said, I'd only heard that from Kristen before and then read what you said about, you know, what he intended. It was, it was so meaningful again that, you know, I loved hearing it again, just that, oh yeah. So he did want everyone to take their own meaning from the story. Uh, and you know, The two best, is where he used the iceberg theory was uh, 50 grand, where you don't know why the guy threw the fighter. If he threw the fight, would, uh, did he win accidentally when he was supposed to throw the fight? Uh-huh, that was 50 uh-huh. grand. And the other one, which is more for men than women, I think, is the short and happy life of Francis McComber, where oh. you don't know if the wife intentionally shot her husband or not, right? You don't <gasps> know. And you're left to guess. And oh, I don't know that. I'll have to read it. Okay. And the one that women would like a lot is the one where the woman is thinking, you know, I've just had an abortion and how do I feel about this? And the husband is quizzing her about it. It's called Hills Like White Elephants. Uh, oh. um, but uh, yeah, my favorite story, I think my favorite story is the snows of Kilimanjaro. Uh-huh. Where uh-huh. The old writer is dying of gangrene. Uh-huh. And, um. But you should know that Pauline, the second wife, was such a good editor, and she made sure that his stories always subscribed to the iceberg theory as best as she could. And Pauline never kept any of her letters. Um, And so one of the missing gaps is how important was Pauline in his life? And I, I argue in my book that even though she wasn't the most lovable person, that she was the most compatible. I will say that my book is designed to increase Hemingway's uh, presence in this century. I want younger people to learn about him and maybe read his work and say it was relevant back then. And the best, yeah. the best thing of art is it stands the test of time. And Cezanne has stood the test of time. Yeah. And I think Hemingway wrote in the fourth dimension because his legend, time is the fourth element. There's yeah. length, width, and height in his, in his stories. And photographer, photography now and the web and Zoom and Instagram and Facebook has now allowed us to take our trips around the world visually. But there's nothing better on a cold winter night than to be curled up with a good book. Do you have time for the audience questions? Sure. I'd love to answer any questions. Okay. The first one is, what is your favorite place that you have visited in Hemingway's footsteps? In the U.S., probably, uh, you know... I'd have to say Cook, Montana, because it's so beautiful there. Yeah. And, you know, and Cook, Montana, and Cook City, Montana, and Sheridan, Wyoming, don't get enough play in shaping. Uh, you know, he wrote a lot of uh, his books while living full time, or his home base was Key West, but he wrote a lot of stuff while uh, uh, on these hunting trips, while he was riding horseback for 30 miles. And dropping the revolver that his father killed himself with in a 
deep blue river in the mountains of Montana. But in, in Europe, I would have to say there's a tie for first place. Hemingway called the loveliest city in Spain Compostela, Santiago de Compostela. And that's where the it's the end of this pilgrimage for so many people that walk these miles and miles uh, and in a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. And he called it the loveliest city in Spain. And it really, it's amazingly beautiful. And there's no tributes to Hemingway there. He only kind of vacationed there with, with Pauline in the uh, 30s. And he may have gone there a time or two with Hadley. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But he loved, uh, he loved uh, that little town, and I loved it too. Um, but I would say in Italy, he, was, uh, he went to Rapallo to visit Ezra Pound shortly after Hadley became pregnant with, uh, with Jack. And it was uh -huh. early 1923. And they went to Rapallo, and they stayed in this hotel. And I think it was room number 66 where he began writing where he got the inspiration to write Cat in the Rain. And the wife is very dejected and despondent because she wants to have a baby. And the husband doesn't pay hardly any attention. He's busy reading the newspaper and he's doing other things. And she sees this cat in the rain uh, getting it's setting under a table, uh, white tables with green uh I think the chairs are green, but he paints a very vivid picture of this despondent wife and the husband pays no attention to her. And she goes down and she wants to save the cat from the rain and she doesn't save it. And she's even more depressed. And uh, the story ends with the, uh, uh, the, the hotel, the main guy at the hotel coming up and holding this wet cat and giving it to the wife. Right. So the wife's happy and you're not so sure if the husband is, you know, so he, Hemingway leaves you hanging. And the reason I love that spot, it, when I was there, it was raining. And I started writing a short story. And I, the, the title of my story is called Racist in the Rain. And uh, um, I was very troubled by all the things happening in America with mm -hmm. uh, racial relations and uh, mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement and, and you know, mm -hmm. the different stories about Reconstruction after the Civil War and was the Civil War really about slavery or was it about states' rights? And so many things applied then that I started writing a story that was heartfelt that actually changed. And I don't, I'm not including that story in my next book. I wanted to include it in a, an appendix so I could kind of show off my own style, but I decided this was not the place for it. Uh, if any readers want to see a copy of this, they can send me an email and I'd be happy to show them the draft of my story, Racist in the Rain. Okay. One reason I'm very fond of it is I actually wrote a story because I was writing the story from the same room that Hemingway and his wife were in. Oh. And it was oh. raining. And I looked outside and there were white tables with green uh, chairs. Oh. And I'm thinking this is exactly where Hemingway uh, and Hadley were back in 1923. And here it was I mean, 98 years later. And this is just, I mean... It's like bucket list moment. It's crazy. You know, I've been in the same room in which he and Hadley were in in Spain. Oh. Um, uh, I've been in the, you know, I spent the night in France where he and Hadley lived in 1921. Uh, I know. Like Hotel and we took pictures from outside the room. So we know not much has changed. Yeah. Um, 
you know. It's crazy. I was given a tour of this suite in Venice, you know, uh, only 8,000 euro a night. You could spend the night in the Hemingway suite at the uh, beautiful old hotel that he lived in while he spent time in Venice. It's crazy. Does Kurt find that he enjoys the footsteps of Hemingway as a younger man or as he got older, does he find that there's a difference at all? And this person went more into it and said that he has read, he's a Hemingway fan too. And he said, I've read that Hemingway became more bitter. Well, of course he did when he got older, but you know, became more bitter towards hospitality workers and hotels and or people he was a guest of. And he wonders if you have encountered any stories of anything like that in your travels. Um, and, you yeah. know, I know it's been a long time. So it's not like you're encountering, encount, encountering people who, you know, were with him, you know, worked at the hotels. But I just wonder if you've heard about any of that stuff. This person, um, you, know, you know, the, the main biographers have recounted the story or two when he could be mean to his wives. But he was usually a big tipper. And so he was generous to people that waited on him. But when he was in a bad mood, uh, there's one story where he was in, I believe it was Madrid, but I'm quite sure it was Madrid or it was one of the cities in uh, Spain where it was either Lorraine Bacall or Ava Gardner or one of the other act, one or two actresses were there and they were so happy to be with him. And he was a real jerk to one of the, uh, an elderly man came up and was very kind, asked for his autograph. And Hemingway was mean to him and shooed him away. And both women looked at each other going, man, this guy, you know, was quick to be irritable. So when he was down, he could, but all of his life, he could be a jerk at times. He was arrogant in high school. Um, Yeah. He was a football player in the football team. And the captain called him lard ass because he was slow (laughs) and he played in the offensive line. But he could be arrogant and he could be, uh, he could be biting yeah, uh, but when when he was at a party, he drank a lot, and he was the. But there was never a point in Hemingway Hemingway's life where I wouldn't have liked to be around him because he was the life of the party at yeah. many cases. But many times he was shy and withdrawn. As an older man, he would oftentimes be not the life of the party, but he would always show up for events in Cuba in his shorts and his in his hiabera. Uh, I think it's hiabera, but it looks like gayabera. Shirt uh-huh. in moccasins, and he had his uh, he held up his shorts with a rope, right? Um, so he was kind of a slob, and his wife, especially Martha, hated the fact that he was a slob. But there was never a moment in Hemingway's life where I wonder wanted to uh, interview him and be around him for a period, but not for too long because a lot of nice people ended up unfriending him. But if we had anyone scrutinizing our life like this. We're going to have people who say that we were real assholes and we're going to have people who say we were really nice. So I've made my share of enemies, but there's hardly anyone in my life that I haven't made amends with if they were once enemies. And if they still don't talk to me, well, then there must have been a good reason they just <laughs> right. uh, unfriended me. There must have been a good reason. Uh, but for the people that really matter, I've apologized. And if they haven't accepted the apology, then, you know, we have to move on in life. You yeah, know? that's um, more about them. We have uh, 10 rapid fire questions for you. All right, let's fire and, away. And Key West or Paris? Paris. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Book or audio? Book. 
Okay. Boat or plane? Boat when I'm fishing, plane when I'm traveling. Accounting or writing? <laughs> writing. Yes. <laughs> Wine or coffee? Oh. <laughs> Let's go morning your... or evening. Morning Anyone... or evening. I'm going to answer that with a question. I know. Sue Tanya, who lives in Paris, I asked her the same thing. And she said, that is not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. I couldn't live without either. I know. Okay. That, you know what? She couldn't decide. So I think we just left it at that. Ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. <laughs> okay. Handwritten letter or email? Handwritten letter. I agree. Evening in or out on the town? Evening in. Okay. Five-star hotel or tent under the stars? Just because I have a bad leg and it's difficult for me to get in and out of a pup tent. I'd say five-star hotel. Okay, so the, the one question we ask everyone, and we think it's a super important question, is what does a life well-lived mean to you? Seeing as much of the world as you can, being as kind to people as you can, uh, having the courage to enter into a relationship that with someone that you think you can be happy with until the end. That is beautiful. But we want to make sure that we we touch on everything. So you have a podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what's it called? How can we find it? Um, You can find it at my name, KurtDeBerg.com. Hemingway, New Perspectives. I wanted to keep it short, but punchy. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll link to it down in the show notes. And then I know that the link to your uh, book is on your website. And we'll also link to that. We want everybody to know about that. It's beautiful. Um, oh, thank we're going to share that. We love it so much. I have my own. Well, I'm active on Facebook. Uh, okay. You can search my name. You know, I think you'd find me by my full name, Curtis Elderberg. Certainly okay. you can friend me on that. And okay. I post maybe once a week on the main Hemingway Facebook site. Uh, I like to post little nuggets to intrigue people to want to know more about him. Thank you so much for being here, Kurt. Thank you for having me, Shannon. Well, you couldn't be there for the conversation, Jer, but you know, you've heard it a few times as I edit and, and you've of course, you know, watched it. Kurt's a really interesting guy, right? Oh yeah, without a doubt. You know, he's a scholar. You can definitely get that from the conversation, the research he does on his journey while traveling in the footsteps of Hemingway. I mean, you you have to admire the digging into the details that he does. What I love are the parts about him staying in that hotel room where he and Hadley stayed mm-hmm. and he's writing in the same room where Hemingway wrote when it was raining outside that, for, you know, for me is where the magic is. Yeah. 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 Those stories, like, it's like I was saying are like bucket list moments. I mean, when can you repeat that? You're staying in the same room and you're writing and it's raining outside and it was raining when Hemingway was, was writing. And he even goes into the detail talking about, you know, the wet cat outside and, you know, um, you know the, outs- the green umbrellas. Of the, uh, outside of the time it, it rained on Prince while he was playing Purple Rain at the Super Bowl, that's got to be The right same kind of thing. The, uh, <laughs> that rivals it to, you know. <laughs> right. And you know what? No matter what, you know, despite the sadness or negative stories you cannot deny that Ernest Hemingway was and is a master of writing. 
you know, he, he's an American icon. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for a reason. This is what I think about artists. And we, we say this about some artists that we're fans of, but um, in the art world, I'm a huge Picasso fan. When I was in college and I backpacked with one of my friends through Europe and we went to Spain and one of my favorite paintings is Guernica, which is actually in this book, this Hemingway book. He actually has where he went to Guernica and in Spain. But anyway, I remember going to the museum where Guernica is and then thumbing through this book about Picasso. And I cannot remember the negative connotation now about Picasso, but there was some negative story about him. And, you know, it, it was something just really shitty. And I remember thinking that puts a real damper on like my Picasso. And for probably, I don't know, half an hour, I remember being pretty bummed. And then you have to sort of get back to the artist and appreciating the art. And so I sort of think about that with Hemingway. You have to get back to the artist, Hemingway, and appreciating his writing and not being able to deny that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's, you know, yeah, there's the art and the, and the artist and, um, you know, obviously we, they, you get together to celebrate the, the, the person's art, but at the same time it is celebrating him. Um, but it's really about his art. And the, the thing is the, the mental illness kind of, kind of drove the art and made it so good. The mental illness also caused a lot of character flaw in in the person but the silver lining here i think and it this is probably true in a lot of cases with artists that when all said and done and, and time has gone by and he's gone and all the people in his life are also gone the art remains and despite the character flaw or whatever with the person the art stands out as something that people can celebrate moving forward and in turn, you celebrate the person. Yeah. Sorry. And that's a kind of a cool thing. I agree. Yeah. Who else can you say gathers together a bunch of people in his honor in such a positive way once a year, hundreds of men for a lookalike contest to look like him, raise money for a scholarship fund in a million degree heat in Key West in July. You know, these men and women, because I'm going to speak for myself, because my phone heats up and shuts down and dies every year in the heat in Key West, gather for Hemingway's birthday, go to his home, talk about him, quote him, dress up like him, bring all sorts of people together, raise a toast to him, all things good in his honor. Oh, and back to the scholarship, the Hemingway Lookalike Society has this you know, Hemingway Lookalike Society Scholarship Fund that honors the memory of Hemingway. They provide a scholarship to students um, in the writing and nursing field. And I mean, who, I don't know many American icons, but this is the 40, I don't know, a little 41st annual that they're doing yeah. it this year. Mm -hmm. But who else can you say that? So, with all the negative, there are so many more positives. Like Kurt, if you're feeling super adventurous, you can join us down in Key West this year. 
cheering my dad on, of course. And you can <laughs> also follow his journey, shameless plug, at Wayne Collins for Papa 2022. We'll link it in the show notes. And you can get a really nifty t-shirt if you're on our cheering group, just saying. Okay, but seriously, Kurt did mention that his mission is to keep the tradition of Hemingway going and to keep generations of people knowing about Hemingway. And we couldn't agree more. I mean, that that book, while it has wonderful stories in it, has these beautiful pictures. And in the age of Instagram and photos, that definitely is intriguing. And that that definitely brings people in. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And if you want a heads up on our, our guests prior to our recording, you can be part of our VIP list. We'll put the link in the show notes. That way you get to submit questions that we may ask our guests on the episode. You can find info about Kurt DeBerg and how you can purchase his book, Traveling with Hemingway, in the show notes. You can always find us at ornoradventures.com, on Instagram at ornoradventures, also linked in the show notes. In the spirit of this show, we'll end with one of our favorite quotes from Papa Hemingway. It is good to have an end to journey toward, but it is the journey that matters in the end. So until the next time, enjoy the journey that you're on. We're wishing you lots of adventures. Bye. Bye.